I have been on a 10-day lecture tour. This is lecture number 10. And just today, John Edwards and I came back from Our Lady of Waltingham. We, there was a big uh, rally last night with the Anglicans, which is very hopeful. And I had a talk, a little talk in the town last night. And I'm so impressed by the great beauty and the devotion of the English people to the Blessed Virgin. My talk will have three different themes. It is the general theme of Our Lady in the Parish, but I want to cover the role of Mary in the universal church, just to look at how, what, is, what role does she play in the history of salvation in our faith. Secondly, Mary and the separated brethren. Some people allege that in order to attract people into the Roman Catholic Church, we should put aside, de-emphasize the Blessed Virgin Mary, otherwise we scandalize them and place unnecessary obstacles to them. So I want to briefly discuss that. And thirdly, Mary in our local parish and in our home, because it's within the parish where the universal church meets each one of us as we live and die and are baptized and are married. <clears throat> when we look at the church at large, this miracle of an organized body with a hierarchical structure, with faith, with conviction, with sacrament, with a 2,000-year tradition, we ask, does, does Mary play any role in the life of the church? And if we look at it from the point of view of liturgy, the church year begins, not in January 1st, when the secular year begins. It begins with Advent. We await the coming of the Redeemer. And every year we repeat this expectation. But there was a time when it was not simply a memorial of the expectation. There was a time when the entire human race awaited a Redeemer. It was the advent of the human race, and the human race desperately needed light and strength. It needed to be bought back because it was in the hands of an evil principle, sin, the devil. It was living in darkness, in the shadow of death. And the Jews especially knew, because they had been promised, that a Redeemer would come, an anointed one, a Messiah, who would buy back Israel and would save the human race. And while the world waited, above all Israel, uh, taught by its prophet, a woman came into being, the Blessed Virgin, and it's thanks to her that the Redeemer came. If there had been no Blessed Virgin, there could be no incarnation. So the very beginning of our liturgical year, year after year, celebrate this Advent, that if we say we look forward to Christmas, it is only because in our midst there is a woman with child, there is a woman knitting together in her own body the very Savior who by his passion and death will, will redeem the world. Also, this point then about a woman with child and about a mother of Jesus Christ, this already gives the lie to certain errors 
which are quite prominent today, uh, one does not always hear the clear truth today, whether about the church or Christ or the sacraments or the Blessed Virgin. And one hears this error, one hears it too often, that the, the Catholic Church stresses too much the divinity of Christ and pays no attention to the humanity of Christ. And it is for this reason that we are supposed now to stress the humanity of Christ. There's been too much exaggeration that Jesus Christ was divine. Let, let's talk of Christ as human. And one acts as if, as if this were a late insight. We just found this out. And until the last 20 years, we never knew that Jesus Christ was true God and true man. Now, this is very strange. It is the Roman Catholic Church above all because it honors Mary, which has honored the mother of the humanity of Christ. The Blessed Virgin Mary did not create the eternal God. She's a creature of the eternal God. But in her womb, she knit together what? The humanity of Christ. Therefore, to the extent that we stress the Blessed Virgin, and the Roman Catholic Church has always done that, this is the source of embarrassment to certain people. Well, to that extent, we of course stress the humanity of Christ. It is not the case, therefore, that we have neglected the humanity. And when at Christmas time, following St. Francis of Assisi, we have little scenes of the nativity, we have a virgin and a baby in her arms, we are, of course, emphasizing the humanity of Christ that baby is born of the virgin, to that extent human. That baby is also the incarnation of the divine word, the second person of the blessed trinity, to that extent divine. But mother is, Mary is the mother of the total person, and therefore rightly is called the mother of God. Anytime we stress the blessed virgin, therefore, we obviously stress the humanity. Her, the blood, the flesh, the bones in that little child came from the, the womb of the Blessed Virgin, came from her nutrition, came from her, her principle of life within her. She nursed a baby with her breast, and this is a human situation. Therefore, this, this child, which was once held in the arm of the Virgin, and then grew and grew and then uh, scripture records that he was lost at the age of 12 and his parents sought him. This again and again emphasizes the humanity of Jesus Christ. When we think of the liturgical year going forward, there's Advent, a woman big with child. There's Christmas, the virgin mother gives birth to the child. And then the liturgical year calms down. There's not too much going. There's Lent. And it used to be one looked forward to Lent with a kind of dread because Lent is, uh, is not necessarily a celebration of things. Nowadays, Lent demands so little of us. We don't look forward with dread or anticipation. It's just something. Maybe every Friday we have fish. But even so... Lent does not necessarily involve the Blessed Virgin. If we think of the liturgical year, the 
Advent and Christmas are Marian feasts. Whereas Lent seems to be that the God-man goes alone into the desert. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasts. And the Blessed Virgin is not mentioned in Scripture. One may presume she is home at prayer. But these are but speculations. In any case, when the ministry of Jesus began, just three years before his death, Scripture records that his first miracle had Mary involved in it at the marriage feast of Cana. So at least in this scriptural role of the Blessed Virgin, she is there when he reveals his divinity or begins to reveal his divinity in, in performing this miracle. And it's a very human miracle. It did not raise someone from the dead. It did not give food to a starving person. It was simply a miracle of generosity. The people had already drunk enough at the wedding feast, but in this superfluous, superfluous love, this generous, overflowing love of God, asked by the Blessed Virgin, there was still more wine and better wine for a marriage feast. What a wonderful introduction to the miracles of Christ. His mother beside him, he performs a miracle so that there can be true joy in a very beautiful event, the wedding between a man and a woman. When, though, we investigate the passion of Christ, because Lent as a liturgical event culminates in Holy Week, culminates in the passion of Christ, we can just think of the stations of the cross to aid our memory in whether Mary has any role to play here. And there's one station when the Blessed Virgin, station four, Jesus meets his afflicted mother. This is not in the scripture, but it's absolutely plausible. It is absolutely in harmony with everything we know about the Blessed Virgin. She was always with Jesus. She was always near Jesus. We know that. Because she stayed at the foot of the cross when all the apostles fled but what? John. We know it because when Christ is taken down from the cross, she receives the body of Christ, the dead body of Christ in her arms. The Blessed Virgin is sometimes in the litany is called the mirror of justice. And I always like this image. The eternal justice is, of course, God himself. The eternal God. And God is infinite. The mirror of justice is not infinite. It's something like the mirror on a car. You have a small reflecting mirror on the car that makes everything seem so small. But nevertheless, it takes a huge scene and sums it up. And it's good enough so that we see the oncoming traffic through that little mirror. The Blessed Virgin is finite. She is not infinite. But she's perfectly pure. She's perfectly shining. And therefore, in this brilliant mirror, she reflects everything of the infinite Son, the infinite God who is her Son. And this is a beautiful thought, therefore, that in the Passion of Christ, she's always reflecting in her finite way, this infinite love 
and the infinite suffering and the infinite sacrifice of her son. St. Bernard was talking about this title of the Blessed Virgin as compassionate. And people were trying to deny that she suffered. People claim that we exaggerate too much the sorrowful mother. And St. Bernard said so well, if her son had passion, if her son underwent a passion, can we not agree that his mother suffered with him with compassion? So in this mirror of her son, everything he did for our salvation originated with him, is infinite because it comes from a divine principle, but she mirrors it, goes along with it, is near to it, says yes to it, and thereby earns this uh, title of compassion, suffering along in the most perfect way possible for a creature with her divine son. We also know in the way of the cross that she is the, I noted we, we see her in the fourth station meeting her divine son and one wonders what compassion existed when she saw the suffering of the son in the Twelfth station, she's at the foot of the cross and remains there while this agony and drama of all time is acted out. The most stark scene in all literature, in all painting, the God-man suffering and dying on the cross and nature breaking apart and the world in an upheaval because of this unbelievable and indescribable crime that men have killed their God. And then this hidden work of the deeds of men that thanks to their evil deed, God makes still greater good come from it and our redemption is perfect. And then the last scene, the station 14, is the theme of the great sculptor of Michelangelo, the Pieta. And he, of course, has the finest version of it but there must be 10,000 different painters who have painted that scene where the mother holds her child, not a baby, not a warm, bubbling baby with beautiful eyes looking at her with life, but a dead corpse, still warm. And this is the great sorrow of Mary, one of the great sorrows of Mary. But again, it's the mother holding her son. So when people protest that they want to stress Jesus Christ and they're afraid that the Blessed Virgin will turn them away from Jesus Christ, let us point to Bethlehem where the mother holds the baby. No mother, no baby. Let us point to the 14th station of the cross where the mother holds the dead body of Jesus Christ. So from his very origin prior to his birth, knit in her womb, to his last days before his death on the cross, his mother is involved, inevitably involved in the birth, involved through love in the death and in the compassion while he was hanging from the cross and while he was taken down from the cross. And this should be a good panorama. This should always fill our minds and whenever we, we actually, whenever we cultivate devotion to the Blessed Virgin, it will fill our minds. 
that we think of her as inseparable from the God-man who is her son. And this is the great source of joy and consolation to us all. So much then for this quick sketch, and not necessarily orderly sketch, of the role of the Blessed Virgin in the universal church. I come to my second point, which is the question of the separation and the possible unity of Christians. And this is a great agony for serious people. Ten, fifteen years ago, Pope Paul VI met the primate of the schismatic Greek Orthodox Church, which believes, or we believe with certain small exceptions, but which will not accept the authority of Peter, and they embraced each other, and Pope Paul said, why are we separated? And that's an agonizing cry. And when one goes to serious Anglican churches, such as it seems to be at Walsingham, when one sees the great devotion they have to Christ, to the Blessed Virgin, they even have the reserved Blessed Sacrament. They at least think it is valid and that's an ambiguous question because one does not know the status of their orders because of their possible valid ordination and so on. But when one sees people genuflecting before what they think to be the reserved sacrament, the question is, why are we separate? When one sees serious Lutherans with a great love for Jesus Christ who, who are anxious about the honor of God, when one thinks of how it is the Lutherans who have given us perhaps the finest sacred music of all time in Bach, you say, why are we separated? And so on. So that it's bad enough that we do not agree with atheists and Jews. To, to a certain extent, we do agree with Jews. But it, one understands that Oriental religion, Buddhists, Hinduists, uh, uh, do not agree with us. But how is it possible? that those calling themselves Christian, Methodist, Baptist, Lutheran, Greek Orthodox, Roman Catholics, how is it possible that they are so tragically split? And they go in so many different directions, and one even alleges that this split is at, at the explanation of the troubles in Ireland. It's allegedly a religious war, so that if only the Anglicans and the Romans, Catholics could get together, the, the troubles in Ireland would be over heard that disputed, but that is at least alleged. So the big question is, does the Blessed Virgin play any role in the division of Christians? May she, must she play any role in the unity of Christians? We have certain theologians who think that the Blessed Virgin is a tremendous embarrassment to unity. And I've actually seen this written down, and these are pretty prominent people. They're very unhappy that the only two exercises of papal infallibility had to do with the Blessed Virgin Mary. You may know that we Catholics claim that the Roman pontiff, the Pope, when he speaks about faith and morals in a solemn way, can teach the universal church infallibly. He does not need a general council of the church. Now that doctrine of the infallibility of the Pope was itself defined only in Vatican I, 130 years ago. And since then, only twice, 
has the Roman pontiff explicitly asserted that he means to teach infallibly the universal church. And one time it was on the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The other time it was on the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now this is a source of tremendous embarrassment, not to good Protestants, but to Catholic theologians who blush because they're so afraid that this makes them seem ridiculous in the eyes of learned theologians in Germany and everywhere else. And I've actually heard a prominent American theologian say, if we want unity, say, with Lutherans and Anglicans and Baptists, let's simply forget about the assumption of the Blessed Virgin and the Immaculate Conception. Let's not deny it, but let's not mention it. Let's act as if it never happened because it has the embarrassment, number one, of dealing with the Blessed Virgin, and we Catholics are always accused of, of adoring her. The embarrassment, number two, of having been promulgated by the Pope, and the Protestants aren't too happy about getting their religion from a man. They want it directly from the Bible. So in both cases, therefore, this theologian thought that we did best to put aside the doctrine uh, of infallibility and immaculate conception and assumption, and uh, many people seem content to go along with it. Now, I don't know how things are in this country, but Marian devotion has drastically decreased in the last 20 years to the extent that the so-called ecumenism increases, this love of unity increases to that extent in at least my country and I dare say in many other countries, the cult, the devotion to the Blessed Virgin decreases. And my question is, is this right? Is it the case that the Blessed Virgin is an obstacle to Christian unity? My answer is no. It is not the case at all. And I want to note why. I'll give several reasons. The first is this. This first reason comes from your Cardinal Newman. To my mind, the greatest Catholic writer and thinker since St. Augustine. And you people are native English, and you should read him, honor him, Read him aloud at dinner. Give him to your children. Let, let this giant light of the world uh, be one of your proud boasts. You also have Shakespeare. You have so many other boasts. He's probably your greatest boast. And please remember this when people start talking about Anglo-Catholic unity. Cardinal Newman was a gifted scholar in the Anglican Oxford movement. He was a, a priest in the Anglican Church. He had enormous prestige, and it cost him dearly. He lost his position, he lost his friends, he lost his reputation to go from the Church of England to the Church of Rome. And now when people say they're the same, someone should have told Cardinal Newman. He didn't think they were the same. And that perhaps is one reason why he's not read today. He is an embarrassment. But Cardinal Newman was a great scripture scholar, besides being everything else. He's like St. Augustine. He's like the father of the church. And he, he was trying to show the unique claim of the Roman Catholic Church. And he was trying to say that the Church of England has many truths that the Roman Catholic Church has, but it lacks others. It has defected from the fullness of truth. It needs to come back to the fullness of truth. And 
Amazingly enough, one of his proofs concerns precisely the Blessed Virgin Mary. And this is very interesting, too, because the Anglicans have a very balanced theology, at least Newman did when he was an Anglican. The Lutherans are much more uh, uh, anti-church and much more in favor of Scripture, 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 the Bible. We don't need a church. We have the Bible. The Anglicans will allege that we need a church. They simply think that their church is but a branch of, of, of the true church, and so is Rome, and so is Greece. But what does the Bible say? Well, let's, let's get biblical. This is supposed to be the age of the Bible. In the Gospel of St. Luke, the Blessed Virgin delivers this Magnificat, the so-called Magnificat. Is my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now, this is a recorded line in the Bible, in the Bible, not from church teaching, by the Blessed Virgin, one of the few recorded lines. A little ways down, the Blessed Virgin says, And behold, henceforth, all generations shall call me blessed. So there's a little Jewish girl, 16, 17, with child, by the Holy Spirit. And she says, and it is recorded in Holy Scripture, that all generations, one generation after another, from the year zero, the year of our Lord, one, to the year 100, the year 200, 300, 400, 500, to the year 1984, all generations shall call her blessed. And Cardinal Newman said, my dear brothers, look around. Who are the Christians? who say day in and day out, blessed art thou among women. It's the Catholics. Every time we say a rosary, every time we say the Hail Mary, and we say it awfully lot. And I admit the rosary only came into being as a unified prayer in the 12th, 13th century, but the Hail Mary was existent since the time of the church. And we Roman Catholics, we say, blessed art thou among women. So Newman said, you see, my brethren, the scripture predicts Mary, giving the words of Mary that all generations shall call her blessed. The Roman Catholics do call her blessed. Well, that's a kind of biblical proof that we are in harmony with the Bible. And to the extent people are embarrassed by that Hail Mary, thinking it somehow detracts from the honor due to God, well, to, to that extent, at least, they're not biblical. And that's a very interesting point, which we ought to insist on more, instead of always being embarrassed by our Marian devotion. There's a second point. St. Paul speaks, and this again is from the Bible, St. Paul speaks of the body of Christ. And we, and and. There are two senses, at least, to this phrase, the body of Christ. The original sense is that flesh and blood organism, which was knit together in the womb of the Blessed Virgin for nine months, like any other baby. It was begun by a supernatural intervention. But then once it was born, this body needed nourishment, needed air. It had blood. It could bleed. It could feel pain. It could feel weariness. And this means the humanity of Christ. And this is the body of Christ. And it was this tortured body which was put to death on Calvary. 
And it was the same tortured body which was transformed and glorified on Easter. And still retaining the wound so that Thomas could put his hand in the body. It was not a phantom. It was not a spirit. It was a body. Now that is the literal body, the original body of Jesus Christ. There is also the Eucharistic body of Jesus Christ. And we firmly believe that when Christ said, this is my body and this is my blood, he meant it. And we firmly believe that the ordained priesthood, through the power of God, has the power to confect that miraculous sacrament. But there's a third body, which St. Paul, which has now been called by Pope Paul uh, Pius XII, the mystical body of Jesus Christ. And this has been a serious teaching beginning with St. Paul and developed through the ages, above all by Pope Pius XII, that the church is the body, the mystical body of Christ. Christ's body, therefore, has different ways of existing. But right now, the faithful, in a hierarchical order, are knit together in a harmonious unity. And some, and, and it's just like in the human body. The head is not the heart. The heart is not the lungs. The lungs are not the feet. But head, heart, lungs, nervous system, all of these things work together to have one body, one purring, unified body which is the thing the medical doctors study. So too, St. Paul, the scripture, assures us that there is a body of Christ, not this literal organic body now which medical doctors study, but a mystical body, and it has eyes and head and feet and lungs and heart in a figurative sense. That, that part of the body teaches, it's like the brain, Direct. Other part of the body moves. Other part of the body ex, uh, uh, is energetic or grows or gives nutrition. So St. Paul refers to the people of God as a body knit together with Christ as the head. Christ is the head of the body and with the vivification coming from the Holy Spirit. So this church is the mystical body of Christ. 